Fox Sports is the home of Australian rugby, and this is the official Fox Rugby Podcast with your host, Nick McArdle. Yes, thank you very much for joining us once again for the Fox Sports Rugby Podcast. And with me this week from foxsports.com.au, Sam Worthington, welcome to you. Afternoon, Nicholas. Christy Doran still on holidays, the uh, the longest holiday ever. He might be lucky, actually, to get his position back. It's a very good point. He's gone somewhere into the outback, I'm told, uh, the Kimberleys region. He's, he's been gone walkabout a fair while now, so uh, it's a very... Hopefully he's back for finals. We'll see. Two words for you. Wolf Creek. He doesn't look like an outdoorsman, really, does he? So no. I'm a little bit worried for him. No, those... Uh, those Polo, Ralph Laurentinos <laughs> might be getting a little bit dusty as we speak. Also, joining us this week on the Fox Sports Rugby Podcast, Ross Zenos, the outgoing CEO of the Rugby Union Players Association. Ross, welcome to you. Thank you, Nick. Lovely to be here with you two city slickers. <laughs> yes, exactly right. Um, exciting times for you. There's a, there's a touch of sadness, too, because we're all aware of what you've achieved over the last, well, how many years at, as, the, uh, as the CEO of Rupa? So I've been over seven years with Rupa and three and a half as the CEO after uh, Greg Harris moved on in 2015. Indeed. So just uh, fill us in on the new opportunity in Melbourne. Very exciting. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great new challenge for me. Um, a lot of people would say that for the last few years I've been whinging about the lack of money in Australian rugby, so now I'm kind of <laughs> putting my money where my mouth is and getting into a commercial role in Melbourne and, and trying to, to sell the gospel of rugby in Victoria, which I know is not going to be a, a small challenge at all, but looking forward to the challenge and, and working with the club down there. Uh, and at the same time, I, I really feel confident that this is a, a nice stage to hand Ripper over to, to someone else to lead it for its next phase and its next cycle. Uh, we've achieved quite a lot over the course of the last few years. Uh, and, and really at the moment where we are in terms of having now locked away our new collective bargaining agreement through to the end of 2020, the competition structure being as stable as it has been in the last, in the last period of time, uh, the Sevens program clearly working its way up to Tokyo as well. Uh, now's the right time to allow Rupert the opportunity to bring someone fresh in to, to lead it in its next chapter. Just to go back, you know, seven years ago when you first came on board, how, how different was the landscape then at, at Rupert and, 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 you know, for players in general? Mate, I think it was uh, was vastly different. You know, obviously um, we had the, the fresh injection of the Melbourne Rebels at that point in time as the fifth team for the first time playing in Super Rugby for Australian Rugby. Um, pretty different landscape in terms of some of the administrators on the other side of the table. You know, we're going back to the John O'Neills and the Matt Carrolls and the Jason Allens around the traps. So, yeah, there's been a fair bit of change in that time. Um, a lot of it, I think, you know, changes, change can be good. Leadership renewal and, and freshening things up. Uh, but unfortunately, some of the challenges the game faced back then, we still face today. Uh, and I think that's that's really what I would regard as... It's probably being the big next leap of faith for Australian rugby is we've got to make some some bigger and braver decisions around competition structure and also around how we run and manage our game to make sure that we have got enough uh, capacity to make sure that the Wallabies are internationally competitive, that Super Rugby is a compelling product, that we get our talent pipeline right and also that we still have enough to make sure that the grassroots are are well looked after because that's that's the pipeline of future for the game. All of those things are so intertwined, but um, let's start with the competition structure in terms of Super Rugby. And this is now under discussion, of course, with the next broadcast deal just around the corner. Um, what's your view on what Super Rugby should look like and, and what it could look like to make it a compelling product once again, which I think most of us would accept 
it has ceased to be in recent years. Yeah, I think the the unfortunate scenario, I think, has been that with everything that Super Rugby's been through in terms of the controversy of five teams to four teams, expanding to 18 teams, then coming back to 15 teams, we, it's probably the one competition in the world that we talk almost as much about its structure and its business model off the field as much as we actually talk about what's happening on the field. And I think that's kind of one of the key things we've got to try and move away from longer term is that we actually get the product right that we can just focus on talking about it rather than all the politics and business machinations that sit around it. Um, unsurprisingly, because we've been pretty vocal on, on this topic in the past, uh, we look at the current Super Rugby model and the amount of content and rugby that we play outside of our time zone, how difficult we make it for our fans to connect with our teams on that basis. And the fact that we're operating in a, in a market and a landscape where the AFL and the NRL are enormous gorillas sitting in the room uh, and there's more entertainment opportunities and options for fans and consumers than ever before. So on that basis, we, we really do retain the view that a trans-Tasman model where we maximise the amount of rugby we're playing in our time zone against opponents that we have tribalism and rivalry with. It would be fantastic if we could obviously retain the connection with, Jap- with J- Japanese rugby. Uh, it would be fantastic if there was the capacity to put in place a financially sustainable Pacific Island team. Um, it would be great to keep that connection with South African rugby and with Argentinian rugby. And if we can do that through a, a finals qualification process, uh, that that's remains the preferred model of Rupert and of the players. Uh, but we understand that there's, I guess, broader diplomatic issues within rugby and and the heritage and the history that's come with the evolution of Super Rugby that, that might make saying adieu to South Africa and Argentina a bit more challenging in terms of regular season content. It sounds like the whispers are that it, we are going to be looking at a fairly similar, nothing's confirmed yet, but the whispers have been that it's, it's looking like it may be largely status quo. Is, is it mainly the just the massive money in South Africa that, that is, is going to lead to, to that? Um, it would just be too much uh, revenue to, to give up on the, the South African TV dollar in particular? Well, I think the population of South Africa is, is clearly one of the compelling economic factors. Uh, that said, there's... There's also got to be, a, we believe, a, a mindset of if we keep doing the same thing, we're going to keep getting the same outcome. Um, and is building our product in a way that we know is more sustainable in the long term a better option? You know, So even though perhaps in, in year one of the new Trans-Tasman competition model, we may not be in a position that is as far forward as we'd like to be, if that's actually the half a step back to reset and recalibrate and take off from that point, is that a position worth taking. Um, but I think you're right, Sam. I think where we're going to end up is is more likely than not um, a similar model to what we have at the moment. You know, and, and at the same time, we then need to focus on, well, what's the best way for us to maximise the opportunities and commerciality of that? You know, And on that basis, we've got some pretty strong views about trying to bring back the geotag so we know where the teams are from, so that we can build these rivalries, so that we can actually... You know, make make it really compelling for our fans that this is the best provincial rugby competition in the world, and and get behind it and support your team. You know, I think the last couple of weeks have been sensational rugby off the back of the June break, and even some of the games that maybe you look at and you say technically they weren't they weren't pristine games of rugby, having great contests, and that's been just as appealing. Uh, and we go into the final weekend now with plenty on the line for the Rebels, the possibility, albeit slim, that the Brumbies could still qualify. You know, it'll be the first weekend in a long time that many Australian fans will stay up and watch 
the South African game because that has implications on who plays who and who qualifies for the finals. That's that's where you want to be in the last round of a competition. It's how do we take that that magic recipe of every game mattering and actually put that in place across the whole 18 rounds of the season. If the Brumbies are to make it this weekend, it means that the Rebels have to lose. That's going to make your job next year a whole lot harder. So you're clearly going to be barracking for the Rebels this week. No, I am. Uh, I am have very squarely hedged my bets. I've got uh, I've got six teams that I still support right. this at the moment. Okay. So I uh, wish wish all teams the best of luck, very good. Uh, including the two sevens teams, men's and women, who are off to the World Cup in a few weeks' time. Just um, just stepping back for a moment, and and it does sound from what you're saying is you're almost resigned to the fact that there won't be a trans-Tasman competition. But if the players, and and by definition Rupert, feel so strongly about that, how militant would the players be prepared to get and just say, no, this is, we believe, this is the only way that the future of Super Rugby or that Super Rugby can survive in, into the future and this is the only way that we will play the competition. Would, would it ever come to that? I don't think it would. And I think um, 2017 was a really challenging year for Australian rugby. Obviously, what we went through with the scenario around the Western Force and the Melbourne Rebels in terms of, you know, two teams, but really only one spot being left at the dinner table. Um, we then had the opportunity to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement off the back of that process. If ever there was the opportunity for Rupert to be the militant trade union... Uh, that would have been it, right? But but the position that we took at that time, as is consistent with the position we've taken over many, many years past, is that we're a partner in this game. And as much as we may have our views on how we think the game should approach different problems, uh, we know we don't have a mortgage on all the ideas and that our opinions uh, are just that. Uh, we obviously try to put research and positions behind that that justify them. But at the end of the day, um, the players want the game to succeed and we want to work with Rugby Australia and each of the rugby bodies to grow rugby in Australia as much as we possibly can. Uh, so that's where, you know, the, the idea of taking any action that has the capacity to be destructive to the game generally is, is something that certainly we've never entertained while I've been in the chair and I'd be very surprised if Rupert did in the future. Ross, you've touched upon uh, how tumultuous your time in the chair has been um, and the collective bargaining agreement, obviously a big uh, part of your, your tenure as well. What are you most proud of um, of your legacy that you'll, you'll leave behind? Oh, man, I think I think legacy is a pretty generous <laughs> word. I mean, I, I, I appreciate you, you saying it, but I think there's been a whole heap of people over the years who've been significant contributors to Rupert and I've just been um, you know, privileged to be able to work alongside them. You know, And it really is... The, the player leaders at different points in time who stand up and, and have their say to make sure that, that change is achieved. And I've just been fortunate to be the one working with them and hopefully guiding them in that process to make sure that we leave the game better than we found it, right? Um, so I think, you know, to, to that extent, you know, Dean Mum was incredible last year in leading the players through, you know, what, what I would definitely regard as the most challenging year since the game went professional. Um, the work that Shannon Parry and Shani Williams have done around establishing the professionalism of the Women's Sevens program and getting them to a point now where we have entry-level pay parity, where we have a pregnancy policy in place to protect those players. You know, and even the work that guys like Damien Fitzpatrick, uh, Paddy Ryan have done in, in making sure that Super Rugby players' interests are regarded in all this as well. So 
putting a little bit of extra room in the salary cap and introducing a minimum spend in every team's salary cap for 2019 and 2020 to make sure that we get our competitive balance right across the board. Um, you know, and right through to some of the possibly less experienced guys, the guys like Andrew Kellaway who've been involved with us who have been really vocal in terms of what they want the pathway to be and making sure that it's not just all going into the top end, but we've got to make sure that we're continuing to drive that pathway from club rugby into the NRC and then into into super rugby as well. So, mate, I'm I'm just really privileged that I've been able to work with a whole heap of wonderful people over the years, and um, and what Rupert's been able to achieve is is as a result of a united and engaged playing group more so than than any one person. What's your um, talk about the pathway? What's your uh, view of what that pathway should ultimately be? Um, there's been a, a reworking of the NRC this year. Uh, is that one step along a road or a process that, that you would like to see continue? Uh, how does it stand at the moment compared to what it could be or should be in your view? Yeah, I think the... I'll go back to what I said earlier in terms of the, the competitive marketplace that we operate within. And the NRC, in terms of a, a vehicle to give players an opportunity to play a higher level of rugby, to experience you know, a better level of coaching and to develop themselves as footballers, I think we've seen it achieve that that objective and then some. Um, I, I won't rule them off, but there's there's that many Wallabies now that have graduated to a gold jersey mm. who've come through and, and thrived in that NRC pathway that have forced themselves into super rugby teams and then have been able to kick on. Uh, I think the challenge, though, is in the competitive marketplace, how do you take a product like the NRC that's four years old and expect it to have tribalism and rivalry akin to what we see in the other major codes or even what we're seeing in the Shoot Shield or in Brisbane Premier Rugby. Um, it's not going to deliver that kind of meaning and that kind of rivalry from day one. Uh, the flip side also is we don't have the revenue to invest into it, to market it and to promote it and to build it in a way that's actually going to artificially speed that process up. Um, so that kind of leaves us now in a really delicate position of... If it's fulfilling the role, it's it's identified to play in the player pathway, big tick. If it's not delivering, though, rugby a new audience or if it's not delivering additional valued product, I'm sorry to keep talking, using business words, but that, that's, that's kind of where it sits in terms of how we commercialise the game. If it's not delivering that high-value product, um, are there tweaks that we can make to it that still give it that high-performance aspect but actually... Um, allow it to actually create greater non-rugby outcomes for the game. And, and I think, unfortunately, we're, we're now talking about the NRC in the context of a few players that may not be playing in the NRC, or that's that's kind of the narrative that's been driven. You know, And that kind of mentality, I think, is really disappointing that, that we have such great nationally contracted players, but we're not going to allow them to play in a competition. But then we, prepare, we criticise the competition for not being commercially viable. You know, yeah. that, there's something wrong with that logic. And, and I want to get to that in a moment, but just um, just quickly, is another alternative, well, there seems to be a hunger and appetite for perhaps some sort of um, Champions League involving club rugby sides, which, which does tap into that tribalism that you're talking about. You know, um, we know how well Shoot Shield's going in Sydney, Premier Rugby in, in Brisbane. Um, is there some way that, that that concept could replace the NRC or at least be absorbed by the NRC? Well, I think it's one of the options that has to be looked at. Um, like like all of the 
possible variables. Um, the, the challenge that I think comes with that kind of model is how do you make sure that there's stability in club rugby and that we aren't creating a process or a system which then actually allows super clubs to form at the detriment of other clubs and then we then get a complete polarisation. So mm. in in actually trying to make rugby more relevant and attractive to everyone, we then actually fracture one of the bits that's actually going well at the moment. That, I think that's the risk. Um, and we've already seen that for, for all the um, success of the Shoot Shield and Brisbane Premier Rugby at the moment, there's still some clubs in those competitions that are struggling a little bit. Uh, obviously, we've had the publicised issues in terms of Penrith and what's happening in Western Sydney. So how do we, how do we play, again, to the objectives that we require from a high-performance perspective, tick the commercial box as well, but not also completely erode why actually the Shoot Shield and Brisbane Premier Rugby are going well because it's actually the, the competitive balance across all teams and we hate to distort that through amending the pathway. And you, yeah, you touched upon it there just before um, the you know seeing a few high-profile players um, been out in the cold up there in, in Queensland this season. A pretty tough and, and uh, unique, curious case, um, isn't it, with, with the likes of Quade Cooper, Carmichael Hunt, Nick Frisby, and, and James Slip is a different case. But has that been quite a, a tricky one for you guys to deal with this year? And, and secondly, you know, where are they at in terms of you know getting back on the, on the footy field professionally? Yeah, it's certainly been an unusual set of circumstances. Uh, again, when we're talking about nationally contracted players who uh, are not selected to play Super Rugby at any point in time, uh, each of them have their own unique circumstances that have kind of positioned themselves in that way with the Reds. Uh, but again, I, I think enough time now has passed that we're even if we look at each of those cases, there's very valid cases to say that, that all these guys should be given the opportunity to back to play rugby at the highest level they possibly can. Um, you know, I think we obviously saw Carmichael take the field with South at the weekend with Quaid, uh, which is a pretty significant step in his return to rugby. Uh, we obviously now know that Nick Frisbee's been able to secure the deal uh, overseas, so so we bid him the best of luck. Uh, and then James Slipper about to return after his period of ineligibility for his, his publicised issues. So... We wish him the best and, and obviously the NRC is there as a vehicle for those three players to to make that step back to professional rugby. Yeah, is there still question marks as to how much control you know Rugby Australia should should have and be being able to move these guys around? Um, you know, obviously there has been talk of Quaid going to the Rebels or the Brumbies. Uh, are, are, you, are you comfortable with with the current, I guess, uh, power balance there in, in terms of how much control, how much say Rugby Australia has on where these guys play their rugby? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. Everyone everyone says that Rugby Australia should have greater capacity to tell the players where to go. Um, Oh, no surprise the person sitting in my chair is going to say, well, what do the players want to do? Um, and, and ultimately, the players have signed contracts to, to play rugby in Brisbane with the Reds and be part of that program. Um, if those players then have other opportunities available to them, we, we kind of regard that as being at their discretion as to whether they want to accept those or not, but they, they shouldn't under any circumstances be forced into relocating against their will. Does the grey area, though, uh, come where... Obviously, Quaid, I mean, you know better than I do what, what the amount of money is, but he would be um, being paid hundreds of thousands of dollars as that, that Rugby Australia top-up to his contract. And that would be the expectation, with the expectation that he would be available to pick for the Wallabies. The only way that he could be available to be picked for the Wallabies, assume, would be to be playing Super Rugby. 
So therefore, if he's not going to be playing Super Rugby in Brisbane, but maybe given the opportunity in Canberra or Melbourne to do so, does that not then give Rugby Australia some leverage in the situation when they're paying a very large percentage of his contract? Well, it certainly makes them a very interested party in what all of the players are doing um, and, and how much rugby each of them are playing. I think the challenge again becomes that it's not the players who have said, no, no, we're not prepared to play. It's not the players who have ruled themselves out and made themselves ineligible from playing Super Rugby. It's, it's the Reds as an organisation that have said, no, for, for one reason or another, these guys don't meet the standards that we hold in order to wear our jumper on, on game day. Um, and I think, unfortunately, where we find that to be a pretty disappointing position is that, to your point, Nick, that these guys are nationally contracted players receiving top-up money from the Australian Rugby Union. How do we then have such a disconnect where they're valued by the national governing body at one level but valued by a state union completely differently. Uh, and that's, I think that's the kind of $64 million question sitting in the middle of this, is how did we get to this position and why is it that the solution has been to not allow the players to play and actually to put pressure on them to force them to move rather than asking some harder questions of the Reds and saying, well, why are we in this position? Because you take any traditional work. Have you, have you asked those... I assume that you would have been involved in some sort of discussions on behalf of the player. Have you asked the Reds those questions? What is the disconnect here? Why has this happened? Oh, look, I don't think it's any surprises that, uh, as as the Reds have said publicly, that they, they feel like they needed a, a cultural change in how their team has been operating. And as a result of that, they they didn't see room as part of their setup with these players. You know, And, and some of the players have taken their own individual legal advice as to what their position is and whether the way they've been treated is contractually correct. Um, and they've got the opportunity to take that up individually, um, which some of them have. And I think the the position for us is always to support the player in what they want and, and obviously making sure that that is in alignment with the best interests of the collective and of the game more broadly as well. So it's, it's a delicate role for us to play, but ultimately we've supported the individual players in, in their efforts um, Carmichael was pretty vocal over the last few weeks that he was pretty keen to get back into playing Premier Rugby and we were able to support him in a small way to get back on the field as well. Um, for, for the Reds, again, it's, it's, not, it's not a position, I think, for Rupert to ever dictate to a coach who's being picked in the team. But I think the disappointing element of this for us is to not have those players in the environment allowed to compete for selection or allowed to improve themselves as elite professional footballers. That's, that's the disappointment. Uh, you know, that, that we have a, a new coach or a new structure come into play and that blanket the players the players aren't welcome. Um, we, we kind of relate it to in, in any other workplace, if a manager came in and just didn't give a staff member or a direct report any work, there'd, there'd be some issues internally there that HR would need to deal with. Mm. We're, we're just not sure if, if those conversations have been had. You would assume that Quaid, for example, wants to wear the gold jersey again and... If he can't through the avenue of the Queensland Reds and is given the opportunity to move elsewhere, I, I find it quite difficult to understand why he why he wouldn't do that. The argument is he shouldn't have to do it. I, I get that totally because he entered into a a deal in good faith, and you know he he may well you know be thinking, well, I'll just sit it out and, and take the money. But if he wants to wear 
the Wallaby jersey again. And the only way he can do that is through another avenue. Does it surprise you that he hasn't taken that avenue? Yeah, I think that, I guess, the slight difference view that I have on it is that, again, as you said, these guys have committed to playing their rugby in Queensland and playing with the Reds. Um, the opportunity for them to play Super Rugby for the Reds has been closed on them. Their their view of their situation, how to get back to that goal jumper, which I agree with you that they're all still hungry for, is is they're playing the cards that they've been dealt, and that's to go back to club rugby and be the best footballers they can be. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've I've made comment in the last couple of days about it's not only the on field behaviour, but actually some of the reports coming out of of South and some of the work that Quade's done off the field, the impact that. Quaid playing for South is having on other clubs in the competition when they can build their game against South as Quaid Cooper Day. You know, there's, there's interestingly been other flow-on benefits, I think, for, for Premier Rugby in Queensland off the back of the position that the players have taken. You know, and if you're asking me bluntly, I think that you know, there's probably a lot of people out there who were surprised at how respectfully... Uh, these players have handled these situations and that they haven't thrown their toys out of the cot and that they haven't gone and stepped outside the lines of respectful conduct and the like and they've gone back and they've accepted, again, the cards they've been dealt and they've they've been as good role models for the game as they can be. Admittedly, um, in some of these situations, the the indiscretions that got them to this point, I think if players had their time again, sure, they'd, they'd, they'd do different things and they've they're doing their best to accept responsibility for what they've done, but then get on with things and play the best rugby they can. Yeah, I agree. Quaid has been outstanding and, and, you know, I've heard the same stories that you have about, you know, the way he's mentored players at the club. I mean, it's it's terrific, but it's just, I don't know, from a fan point of view, it's just really sad not to see him playing at least super rugby. Um, you know, I think we're all missing out to an extent. Yeah, what about uh, James Slipper-Ross? Um, obviously, some really tough times for him, but as you said, his ban expires pretty soon. What can you say about how he's he's tracking? And also just the wider issue about how teams, clubs are, are dealing with um, player um, well-being and, and mental health issues. Yeah, look, I think um, James has been through, through some pretty well-documented hard times over the last few months. Um, I think I made the, the comment when the news first broke that James's first reaction to the whole scenario was relief. Um, and... I know he's taken a lot of time away to get himself right and, and work with some of his personal demons and work with some, some medical experts to help him and give him some strategies on how to cope with various things that are happening in his life at the moment. And I think the time away entirely from the game has has helped him put those pieces back in place. Um, at the same time, he's got a pretty big challenge ahead of himself to to get himself now back into the, the weekly grind of of being an elite rugby player. Uh, I know he's back training and um, trying to get his physical conditioning right to make that as easy as possible. Um, but obviously, again, for, for him now, it's so important that he's embraced by a high-performance program and being given the opportunity to play at the highest level he can, which now looks likely to be the start of the NRC, um, in order to continue his career. Uh, I think there's been a few people who have possibly been a little bit sceptical about uh, James's circumstances and... You know, was was this uh, a player in trouble, and then it becomes easy to say, "Well, no, I'm I'm actually enduring some hard times, and and therefore I'm playing the sympathy card." I, I can assure everyone that that wasn't the case with James, and that he was seeking professional help for a period of time, even before he got to this point. Um, you know, and I just want to 
as much as you know, there's probably been elements of this chat today where it may seem as though I've been critical of some of the decision making or strategy of the game or whatever else. You know, I really want to acknowledge the very supportive role that Rugby Australia have played in this process and how well, you know, in our opinion, they manage the whole process of of his illicit drugs policy breaches, but then also confronting the issues and then supporting him through this process. It is absolutely been a circumstance where his welfare has been first and foremost in this whole process and, and I would just hope that if ever we have these same situations with players in the future that the same player welfare focus remains. Not long before uh, this issue came to light with James, he'd signed a, a two-year deal to continue his career with, with the Reds. There is now some speculation, I haven't heard it, anything official, that um, you know he might well have played his last game at the Reds, that perhaps he might be um, frozen out in similar ways to uh, Carmichael Hunt and, and, uh, and Quade Cooper. What would your response be to that? Uh, look, I think um, in James' circumstances, we've got a player who was clearly part of the Reds program. Right, to the extent that he was the skipper of the side on, on a few occasions earlier in the year, who has now had some of his personal issues come to light in a very public way, who has been given a sanction in accordance with the illicit drug policy as determined by a tribunal of legal professionals in accordance with the policy, who is now getting to the point of the end of that sanction. And and we really do feel that if James then is not allowed the opportunity to play rugby at the highest level possible, it's hard to not view that as an artificial extension of his sanction, which then presents all sorts of other challenges in terms of, well, that's the sanction that he was given by the tribunal who, at whose right or discretion is it to artificially extend that. Uh, so, look, we hope, we hope we don't end up in that scenario. We hope that he's welcomed back into that program and given the chance to play the best rugby he can. At the same time, i will go back to what we've just been saying in terms of there is a, a large element of player discretion in terms of how these situations are handled. And um, James may or may not be open to other opportunities. I'm personally not sure. We haven't had that conversation ourselves. Um, and if he is, well, who knows where that leads to. And if he's not, then... Um, the NRC and maybe maybe a goal jumper at the end of the year may then play out to him returning to the Reds in 2019. Okay, so you haven't had any contact with the Reds about what what his immediate future might be once he is fit and, and ready to go again. And, and I guess we're talking, you know, 2019 and, and beyond as well. Yeah, so from from our point of view, we've we've only really been focused on on his welfare and supporting him over the last two months that he's had. Uh, I, I believe his agent has had some of those conversations with the Reds in terms of what his reintegration looks like and uh, like in so many different circumstances we're, we're very happy to work collaboratively with the agents to, to make sure that the players are best supported through all sorts of challenges. Player safety and, and uh, tackling laws, um, referees, cards, that's all been a huge talking point in rugby at the moment. And World Rugby's obviously put a huge focus and emphasis on um, you know protecting the head, concussion, these sorts of things. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts about that in terms of protecting the player? Are you you know in support of, of the way that they've gone cracking down on, on you know some of these borderline tackling stuff? Yeah, look, unsurprisingly, um, I'm going to be the number one flag bearer for player safety and the importance of, of player welfare being looked after on the field. I think the real disappointment, though, has been that in some of these recent incidents, um, there's just a real lack of what we would perceive to be consistency and then a real lack of clarity in terms of what the actual boundaries are that players 
are meant to play the game within. And I think that's been the real, again, the, the real disappointment that um, people's reflections on that Irish series should be of what a great contest it was and how good the rugby was being played in those three games. Unfortunately, if you ask people today what their what their recollection was, we're probably going to talk about two incidents, both off a kick-off and both involving the Australian 15. So how does how does World Rugby address those issues long-term? I think the challenge there is is made even harder by the fact that um, different different territories, different national unions have different expectations about what constitutes uh, player safety and what constitutes safe play and also how, how different laws are to be interpreted. You know, And I think you guys ran a, not, not to give you a pat on the back because I'm here at Fox Sports, but you guys ran a really nice piece on kick and chase uh, where you did an overlay of here's, here's the incident twice, one with the Fox Sports commentary and another with the UK commentary. Mm. And, and even in that, we saw a pretty... We saw exactly the same incident, but interpreted in two very different ways, you know, with a little bit of bias from the home commentator at that point in time. So, how does how does that then? No, as a Ross, I think you'll I think you'll find this bias from the from the touring commentators. The, the home commentators had it completely right. Well, so I I, I meant home commentators <laughs> in the extent of who, whichever network was was their home. Um, but but I think that I think that's the issue, and that's these shades of grey. As much as we like it or not, these are the great. This is what we actually love about sport, that we actually have these conversations and these debates and these arguments. I think, though, unfortunately, for all rugby fans, uh, here I am speaking for rugby fans, that's not a very good strategy, but, but I think for all rugby fans, we've, we've had enough of the shades of grey and we would like some clarity shone back on what actually the laws are. And, and for the players, I know there's a great deal of frustration because the playing group now don't have real, a real sense of clarity about what their rights are or are not in the air. Yep. You know, and and that, that unfortunately then creates this whole confusion that when we take the field on the weekend, how are we executing game plans in terms of whether we're putting the ball up or not? Mm. And and if that then changes how entertaining rugby can be, that's that's further cutting off our nose despite our face. Yeah, the, the, the communication, I, I believe the communication from um, from world rugby with these sorts of things is, is uh, leaving a lot to be desired, you know, in terms of... Um, where we sit with this, even post that incident with Israel Folau, there's actually been n- nothing that I've seen official from World Rugby in terms of this is how this incident will be refereed going forward. So we're all sort of kind of second guessing. Um, and I, I think, sorry to jump in, but I think this is one of the other unfortunate, um, unfortunate byproducts of the internationalism of our game that we've seen the NRL come under a lot of pressure this year for its interpretation of the, the laws and the guidance it gave its referees and making sure that they were strict around all sorts of different things and penalty counts and the like. But the NRL and the AFL have the capacity to change the interpretation of how they referee their game on a week-to-week basis. Uh, to your point, we operate within this global structure. We're waiting for a directive out of Dublin as to how this is going to work, and, and there's a lag in all of that, which just means that we're not able to keep our fans up to date as much as we would like because we're not in complete control of how the laws are being interpreted. Is there a perception, do you believe, that there's an arrogance also in, in, in world rugby about, well, this is the, we'll worry about that. Let us worry about that. You know, we'll, we'll take care of that. Um, you, you don't need to know what's happening there and, and we'll just look after it. Is there, do you think there's some of that? I, I think that, I think world rugby is concerned by the, the hit that the game has taken off the back of some of these incidents. I think it would be, uh, it'd be wrong not to mention that. I think they're concerned about how they then implement change from here. And the hard part is 
there's there's no silver bullet solution, otherwise we'd already be there. Um, so it may seem to us that it's not moving as fast as we would like, uh, but I'm sure that World Rugby are giving it the due attention that it deserves. Your move to Melbourne, um, and you touched on it at the top, it is a challenging environment down there. Um, it's a, well, it's a challenging environment for rugby, full stop, in Australia, particularly in a a non rugby community in terms of you know bums on seats, sponsorship dollars. Um, how critical is it in Melbourne now that uh, that there is some large money come into the game in terms of, I guess, the future of, of the Melbourne Rebels. Sure. Well, look, look, I don't think it's, to be honest, I don't think it's more important in Melbourne than what it is in any other city. It's more difficult though, you isn't know? it? Look, it's, it's, it's more difficult in terms of the share of voice that Rugby Union has in Victoria. But at the same time, there is a fantastic rugby community in Victoria that I think has been well activated by the Rebels over the course of the last 12 months in particular, off the back of what happened last year. Uh, in order to really nurture and support the game in Victoria. Um, and I know that when the Rebels were founded, you know, as we said before, right back in end of 2010, beginning of 2011, there was a really strong base of foundation members and a really strong element of support for the team. So as, as much as, again, we, that Rugby Union isn't the, the biggest sport by market share in Victoria... I think there is definitely a, a rugby heartland down there that's that's looking for a vision to buy into and that has already started to buy into that. And if I can play a role in, in bringing that community to life and then also trying to bring some of those AFL fans in to have a taste of rugby as maybe not their their main course in terms of sport, you know, to, to convert a Victorian from an AFL fan to a rugby fan, I think, is a challenge that even the, the greatest marketers in the world will struggle with. But that's that's not really, I think, what the ambition is going to be. I think we all know that in this day and age, we all have so many choices for what we can consume from an entertainment perspective. And if we can get more AFL fans or more NRL fans actually interested in rugby, that they're, they're taking a little bit of, of highlights and then all of a sudden they're watching games and then all of a sudden they're attending the match, that's, that's the longer-term play. Um, and the hard part is we talk about uh, rugby as a sport and as a business and we say we'd, we'd like to grow our business um, at the end of the day there is only there are only so many people in Australia and there are only so many discretionary dollars to go around if we're going to grow rugby we've actually got to steal that from someone else and that's going to take us to be a bit again to be a bit bolder and a bit braver in terms of how we how we communicate our message and that's uh, certainly part of the brief that I'll be tackling when I get down to Melbourne in six weeks. Mm. Have you been watching on with uh, interest the World Series rugby over there in, in WA? And, and uh, you know, secondly to that, just, just how do you view the, the landscape of rugby over there? Do you think there's a chance we see the force back in a, in a revamped super rugby competition down the line? Yeah, I take my hat off to Andrew Forrest, to Matt Hodgson, to Nick Marvin, to these guys that have, that have built the new Western force over in Perth. Um, those guys that have come on board as as members of Rupert in a special membership category we've designed just for them to work with that group and also with their management to look after their interests on and off the field. Um, you know, and I think the real exciting opportunity there is that through the actions of those gentlemen I mentioned before, we now have a situation where professional rugby isn't, is still alive in Western Australia, albeit that they're not playing in super rugby, professional rugby is alive. That, for what The impact of that for young rugby players in Western Australia that there is still that professional pipeline available to them and I know that they're actually um, put
putting some work strategically and investment in terms of developing the women's side of the game in WA as well. The fact that there is a clear pathway now that goes all the way through to professional opportunities because of the work of Mindaroo and the new Western Force, I think on that basis alone we should all be thanking Andrew Forrest for the investment and the time and effort that he and his team have put into the game. Clearly there's an opportunity that if Super Rugby in 2021 is looking for an additional team, there's now a team in Perth continuing to function, continuing to activate its fan base on a regular basis that, that is there ready to be reintroduced at some point in time. Um, could Rugby Australia, when they had their opportunity last year, been better at engaging Andrew Forrest and Mindaroo and, and the potential tens of millions of dollars that might have come from that engagement? Yeah, hindsight's a wonderful thing. Um, and, and look, the, the specifics of that deal... The Adelaide meeting, the $50 million, only those people that were in the room will know what the amount of money was and what it was tied to and how it was going to be invested and the like. Um, I think if I look back on 2017 without reopening all of those old wounds, the the real unfortunate part of the story is just the timing of how everything panned out and that for one reason or another, um, the viability in Rugby Australia's eyes of of sustaining five teams came too late in the process. That's that's the position that's been communicated to us. Uh, as you know, Rupert, throughout the entirety of the process and even to this day, still believes that five teams is, is the best model within the current competition model of Super Rugby for Australian rugby. Um, but that's not the state of play at the moment. So I think, again, the, the, the great value of, for all of rugby in Australia for what the Western Force has done in through World Series rugby is that it's kept professional rugby alive in Western Australia and actually allowed us the option of reintegrating that market and possibly even other markets through the Indo-Pacific that are being activated by that Western Force side into Super Rugby at some point in time. What sort of you know state of rugby do you think the state of Australian rugby is in overall at the moment compared to when you maybe started? Is it is it a more attractive product to, to young kids? Do you think than when than when you started, or is it is it lost some ground potentially over that time? Yeah, it's a really challenging question. Um, look, I, I think um, the the success or failure of Australian rugby is always going to be dependent on what variables we put onto the scorecard and how we want to assess it. You know, is it a matter of where the Wallabies sit? Well, they're still around about the same place. Um, is it a matter of success of our elite teams? You know, in the last, in the time that I've been involved with the seven years, obviously we've had the Waratahs win the comp in 2014. We've had a gold medal in 2016 with the women's sevens in Rio. There's some pretty significant achievements there that I think have done a great job to peak interest in the game. You know, even the World Cup final in 2015 was an amazing uh, moment of kind of the, the country getting behind the Wallabies. I think the challenge for Australian rugby moving forward is um, over the course of the period of time that you've asked me to comment on, I think we've had some great peak moments where rugby it, it's felt like rugby's back, baby. Um, and I think the challenge has been how do we sustain those from rather than being one-off peak moments to actually being more consistent successes both on the field and also the business model. Um, and that's, that's, that's still, I think, the holy grail of, of how we actually remove the variability in, in Australian rugby 
and actually instead of having to wait every four years for a World Cup or an Olympics where we take centre stage, that we have a compelling week-to-week professional rugby competition that lets everyone know that rugby is here and is serious about being a player in the Australian sporting marketplace. And that is about to uh, unfold over the coming months and a year or so as that new deal is done and, and what the new future of, uh, or what the future of Super Rugby looks like. Ross Senos, thanks very much for your time today and, uh, and thank you for being so available over your time at Rupert, particularly as boss, and we wish you all the very best in Melbourne. Thank you very much, Jens. You're listening to the Fox Rugby Podcast. Yes, always enjoy catching up with Ross Enos and uh, he will uh, be a success in Melbourne with the Rebels. I have little doubt about that. Sammy, let's have a look at uh, what is to come in terms of Super Rugby. The last round of the regular season for Super Rugby and, uh, wow, all the, the permutations, the machinations. I don't think we need to go into all of them. We'll try and keep it as simple as possible. We'll be here forever. But uh, let's just look at Friday night first up uh, in terms of Australian involvement. The Reds hosting the Sunwolves and it's George Smith's farewell from Australian rugby and uh, what a remarkable career. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, good social media discussion around it this week. You know, the old photos of him with the dreadlocks going around and, you know, jokes about it being his 17th farewell from Australian rugby because <laughs> he's, he's been and gone a few times, hasn't he? Just a re- remarkable, remarkable career. But I, I think it, it does seem like this almost certainly will be his last uh, professional game anyway um, on Australian soil. He's, he's had a few injury issues, but it looks like the great man's going to get up for one last run around against the Sunwolves. So, yeah, let, let's hope that gets a few through the gates at, at Suncorp to give him a proper send-off, um, just just a remarkable career. He's obviously off to the Bristol Bears, um, hasn't hasn't had enough rugby. He's decided he's going to have a, a bit more football with the Bristol Bears. So, uh, yeah, let, let's hope he gets out there and plays well and, and a, a good victory. And you'd like to think that they will have a good victory against the Sunwolves. Indeed. He did say, I think, that uh, he'd love to, at some stage, get back and and maybe play in a, in a manly v Warringah local derby yeah. in the Shoot Shield. That'd be something special. But, yes, the, the Reds... Wow, the last weekend uh, against the Rebels, finding a way to win that. I'm not sure that Brad Thorne would be uh, totally at ease with how his backline's functioning at the moment, but uh, I can tell you what, the, the scrum is functioning very nicely indeed, and that, that was a win that was uh, built off scrum dominance, really. Yeah, absolutely, and, and as the experts in the, in the studio on the night said, you know, it's getting to the point where the Michael Checker must, you know, must really be considering letting this guy, Taniela Tupo, off the leash um, from from minute one in, in test matches, because he's, he, he's dominating virtually every scrum that he packs down in at the moment, and it's going to be fascinating to see whether the Wallabies can turn that into a, a weapon against the likes of the, the Pumas, the Springboks, and, and of course the All Blacks, um, you know, whether that will, will continue, and I, I really think it at Willie, he's going to have the edge on on even some of the the big names in world rugby, I think. Yeah, he has been outstanding over the last couple of months. And, of course, the Sunwolves last weekend, they were uh, really destroyed by the Waratahs. A record score for the Tars and uh, a record amount of points, a record amount of tries as well. Uh, But they were in the hunt for the first half. It was just with that Samisi Masuera... Yeah, red card just before half time, and and playing the uh, the rest of the game with well fourteen, but even thirteen for a stint there 
in the second half. Uh, they were never going to be in the hunt uh, in that second half, and they go to Brisbane hoping to make a contest of it against the Reds. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, like you say, after about half an hour, it was a, a really good game, and, and the Waratahs were looking a little bit creaky there. They were conceding some tries. Um, and yeah, yet again, it's another, I guess, uh, more ammunition to the argument that let's just dish out yellow cards and deal with this stuff later um, rather than, than going to the red, uh, you know, apart from extreme circumstances and it just seems to be a pretty uh, unanimous viewpoint at the moment, doesn't it? All the coaches are saying, you know, yourself on TV and, and all the experts, uh, I think most people want to see uh, rather than ruining a game, just let's go with the yellow and look at the stuff later and then let's hope, hope that message gets to Dublin sooner rather than later. Exactly right. So as Kafe said, I think here uh, on, on the Fox Rugby podcast that the red card initially was brought in for the lunatic who was just going around bashing people and stomping on people's heads and kicking people and just doing stupid things yep. uh, that there has to be some other way of, of dealing with this um, so the Reds to win for I think if they do win it will be their most uh, most successful season for for five years or so so right. seemingly on the up if they can get a win yeah I guess it's it's a little bit sad that it, you know the the record that they've had will be the their best but it is progress nonetheless I mm. guess and um, yeah just the added factor I guess of a bit of a revenge for what happened in Tokyo That's where right. they uh, had I think they conceded about fifty odd points and I'm sure uh, Brad Thorne will be reminding of that this week so yeah the Sun Wolves I'm, I'm sure they'll score some nice tries again but they're at the end of a pretty tough season and yeah. I think the Reds will, will have the chance to put a few points on here. All right. Uh, so now this is where it really gets interesting from around 3.15 Eastern in Australia on Saturday afternoon. The Highlanders hosting the Rebels in Dunedin. And as I said, the, all the machinations and we can drill down into it. It gets complicated. But really for the Rebels, it's about winning. If they win, they're in. And that's all they can concentrate on. Yeah, they were given a massive um, leg up, weren't they, by the, the Stormers knocking over the Sharks last weekend, which has kept them in pole position. So um, on paper, you'd think a very tough ask here for the Rebels, but the Highlanders have actually got uh, a few of their big guns that have to have their second All Blacks rest week this week. So they're going to be without Ben Smith, Aaron Smith, uh, Waisaki Naholo, I believe, as well. Um, so uh, Luke Whitlock, I believe. So they're going to be uh, severely under strength, which opens this, this right up for the Rebels. The Highlanders also have, if you look at on the table, they, they don't really have any obvious stuff to play for. It's going to be very difficult for them to, to actually improve their position on the ladder unless, unless there's some, some freakish results. Um, so I'm not saying the Highlanders will throw this game, but they're going to be uh, under strength and, and you know down a little bit on motivation perhaps um, compared to the Rebels. So yeah, I think it's a game that they can take out. And the Rebels, although we haven't had this confirmed as yet, but there's strong suggestion that Will Genia and Adam Coleman will both be right and with some luck too, Dane Hallett-Petty who went off injured uh, last weekend against the Reds. So if those three can play it's going to be a, a tight contest. Yeah, absolutely and um, yeah, that could just swing it in their favour again if those uh, big guns are all back. I think Dave Vessels are probably, even one of those two he'd probably take uh, uh, Genia and Coleman because it looked like they might be out for some time but yeah, if they can get um, all three of those guys back then um, they'll go into this match with some real confidence I think. Yeah, just seeing here too, the Highlanders have lost two in a row so um, they're not in a rich vein of form so yeah. it might be a good time for uh, the Rebels to snatch a win there. And then uh, later that evening uh, in Sydney, the Tars and the Brumbies. And it should be said that if the Rebels do win in uh, Dunedin, that basically ends the Brumbies' very, very slim playoff hopes. That would uh, 
put them out of the competition. I think I'm right in saying that. Are yeah, you nodding? I, yep, I'm in, in agreement with you there, good, mate. Good, good. Um, but the Tars and the Brumbies, it's always a hell of a, a contest. And, of course, the Tars are, are trying to lock in second spot and, and potentially you know, the ability to play through a final series at home. Yeah, and it's absolutely massive. And they've got a few advantages with the way the system is set up. They, you know, they aren't genuinely the, the second best team on, on points in the comp, but that's the way it's set up, and you've got to take advantage of that. So that, that's absolutely huge. If, if they can get second spot, they're a, a genuine shot at uh, you know causing some real noise in, in, in this playoffs series. So I think they will get that done. Um, it, it's it's all in front of them there. They've been playing some pretty spectacular rugby, albeit against some you know fourteen thirteen man flimsy defence, but they've got some serious firepower. The Tars and, and they're playing with with confidence. So yeah, I think they'll uh, they'll get the job done and, and roll into the the finals with real confidence. And great little head to heads here too with uh, with a Wallaby flavour about them. Rona and Kurandrani, of course, with Samu Karevi injured. That's going to be of great interest to to Michael Checker and and Tom Banks, who was so good last week, head to head with Israel Folau and and obviously you would expect both players to have an impact on the game. But Tom Banks is. Uh, Looming now as as a real potential, uh, well, not only squad member, he's a squad member in June, but potentially member of the the twenty three throughout the rugby championship. Yeah, Steve Halls was pushing hard for that mm. um, on the broadcast, wasn't he? And, and yeah, like he, he's got that gas as as Halsey was talking about, but he's also a big body as well. Like he's not not a small bloke. He's not going to get pushed around out there. He's pretty good in the in the air as well. So um, yeah, look, great to see the competition. I'm not so sure who the obvious guy to drop out is. You know, Dane Hale at Petty, so um, That's right, so valuable yeah. as well. And, and Marika's done nothing wrong. He, he's a, a very very good finisher himself. But um, yeah, I'm, you know. Injury suspension, these things happen. So I'm sure Banks, uh, obviously Jack Maddox is another guy right there in the mix as well. So I'm sure these guys will get a taste of it at some stage during the rugby championship. Yeah, a couple of young guys there. So the future is is bright in terms of outside backs for the Wallabies. But uh, closer to the time, the Tars and the Brumbies. And the, and the Brumbies have been playing with, uh, with some form, particularly in the second half last week. They're probably unlucky to... Uh, to have it ended when they did. They left their run a bit late and uh, there was a poor call from the referee, but uh, they were on the march. But uh, they've been playing some, some good rugby. Do you see them with the ability to upset the Tars? Uh, yeah, I certainly wouldn't back them, but they're going to be right in the, the contest, that's for sure. We had Laurie Fisher on, of course, last week, and I, I can imagine, can only imagine his frustration um, again over there in Hamilton because they, they came home with a, a wet sail, played some good stuff, but it just took them too long to, mm. to wake up, didn't it? And, and they were a little bit unlucky there at the end. So, yeah, they're going to look back on this the season as a bit of a what-if, I think, because they, they showed their potential um, over the last uh, you know four or five rounds that they can match it with anyone in the comp, really. So, yeah. Let's hope that they can hit the ground running next next season and, uh, and and get back to where they think they belong, right at the top of that Aussie conference. All right. So, so a lot to look forward to this weekend. The last round, as I said, of the regular season, and then we're into to finals. And, of course, the Blitters line, the Rugby Championship, not far away. You will uh, see it all on Fox Sports. Thanks very much for joining us on the Fox Rugby Podcast.